All right, greetings, friends. Welcome to Market Death Podcast. My name is Weston Nakamura from Blockbuster Macro in Tokyo. Uh, and now that we're about a month into this new venture of this podcast, we have a very special guest joining us today for our very first interview of Market Depth, Mr. Taka Kato, formerly uh, head of sales and trading at Bitflyer. How are you, sir? Good. Thanks for having me, Weston. So until now, it's basically just be, been me talking to myself and commentary out of Asia, uh, markets, macro mostly, obviously. This is the first time I'm talking to another human being, um, and I'm very honored that it's you. So so thank you so much for doing this. Um, up until very recently, you were uh, head of sales at trading at Bitflyer, which is the largest uh, crypto exchange in Japan and one of the largest in the world. Um, and But prior to that, you did have a very long and extensive uh, career in TradFi in macro. Um, and we had a little bit of not overlap, but we did. Uh, uh, we both had stints at the Goldman Tokyo Execution uh, Trading Desk and all that too. So, if you want to just kind of go through your your background, just to let the audience know who you are. Sure. Um, so, uh, my name is Taka. Uh, I started my career at Goldman, so I was there for uh, 13 years and uh, kind of did everything uh, from hedge fund sales to execution, as you mentioned, where. You know, you learn a lot about the markets um, themselves uh, and staring at them day in and day out. Um, but also uh, did a stint at Morgan Stanley uh, and Citigroup, uh, basically uh, in the areas of uh, equities, derivatives and hedge fund sales. So that's been um, the uh, main part of my uh, TradFi career. Uh, and then more recently, Bitflyer, uh, I wanted to learn uh, about crypto uh, in pretty in depth. So I thought the only way to do it was to really jump in there and um, deal with it and, uh, and trade it day in and day out. So I did that for uh, two years um, and, and, and really enjoyed it and learned a lot. And, and what made you move? What interested you, um, I suppose, away from traditional finance and into crypto to make that jump? Um, it started with really uh, a set of papers that were released in uh, September, October of uh, 2020. Uh, basically, everyone from the BIS, uh, the OECD, uh, FATF, they all basically wrote a bunch of papers talking about uh, crypto um, and and really central bank digital currency. And that really got me uh, thinking that the, this was going to be for real. Um, they were viewing it that way and they were creating the framework for the monetary system uh, of the future. And so I thought I'd go check it out. Right. But you obviously in 2020, Bitcoin was not new to you. <laughs> you um, were very aware of it from what, white paper days, uh, Satoshi white paper days or so, um, or shortly thereafter. Um, but I guess you were kind of hesitant. And then so that's that BIS paper is what I guess was a catalyst for you that this is going to become huge. Yes. And, you know, um, I think by then the regulators and, and uh, a lot of the leaders in the world kind of were starting to get a feel that this was going to be significant um, and really had to build a framework and maybe a, a way to control crypto. Um, and so the way they were building that framework was very similar to traditional finance, um, but obviously very new to the people in crypto. So I thought, um, you know, there would be a great opportunity to kind of bridge the two, um, have the TradFi experience um, and jump into a world where, again, it was very much the wild, wild west. I first yeah. There. yeah, absolutely. So let me just... um frame this uh, discussion up. So uh, what I want to do today is like, because you really do have such an extensive macro background um, in, in so many different dimensions. And despite your 
very young looks. You are uh, <laughs> you are a very seasoned veteran um, and a long history uh, in in macro as well. And so, for the purposes of this discussion today, I want to tap more into the macro side to get your uh, views and talk about things like the Bank of Japan, um, you know, Japan assets, Japan markets, Japan investors, and then foreign investors into. Uh, Japan um, and the impact that all that has on you know global macro and global markets kind of as a whole and then separately from that if you'll of course allow me uh, to have you back on and then we can do a a dive into just strictly kind of crypto uh, and all that Um, but that said I do have to ask you because we are let's see year to date we're about up 80% on Bitcoin Um, quite a rally and this is happening who knows why this is happening is what i want to know uh, what i want to ask you too but a lot of the a lot of the you know the, the narrative is that this is basically you're seeing a lot of these bank failures happening in the united states so this is basically a response to that or a hedge to that i suppose you're getting a lot of uh you know renewed interest but what do you make of the year-to-date price action it's up you know almost double yep so um in a nutshell, I think it's obviously it's uh, there's a lack of liquidity, and so the volumes I think have been relatively low. But having said that, if you bring if you simplify it to supply demand, really there's a lack of supply after a lot of selling as we hit broke through you know 15,000 and and really had that last sell off, and it just was stabilizing and it was kind of there. And what I think was the catalyst was I think China's stance uh, on crypto and Hong Kong really. Uh, sh- shifted, and I think is that as soon as that started to happen, um, it didn't. It takes a bit of demand uh, in a low supply uh, market to kind of push it up and push it up aggressively. So as it broke through sixteen thousand and change, it really started to accelerate. Then it went through eighteen five and had another level of acceleration. So initially, I think there was a fair amount of technicals combined with uh, there was a short pullback uh, that was more macro related than anything. But from there, it just uh, has gone straight up to 30,000. So effectively, it's roughly doubled from the lows um, of where the consolidation came from. So, um, you know, uh, I, I do think it's um, more the China story than the macro concerns uh, or the bank uh, issues in the US. Um, because you do need, uh, despite all the stories on crypto and Bitcoin, which have been around for a while. The only thing that's really changed to me really is, is the new new demand from what I think is Chinese money through Hong Kong. Okay, yeah, because that's what I wanted to ask you was um, who is behind the move? Um, and so given your recent role and visibility, is it retail? Is it, I mean, are, are there still institutions? Is is it a mixture of both? Um, like you said, is it coming from regionally? It seems perhaps asia driven um but what do you what did you see i suppose from your role sure um so if you first look at the biggest exchanges in the world where most of the volume trades uh firstly a lot of it's asia so some of the big um, firms especially binance um drive a lot of the volumes um at the same time uh derivatives uh, are much bigger component than the spot markets so derivatives probably account for anywhere between 60 to 80% of the volumes on any given day for Bitcoin. Um, and, you know, and Binance is massive. So their daily volumes were uh, roughly, call it 100x us on, on any given day. Um, but they dominated the market. Um, 
So I think a lot of it comes through Binance, which is accessible for a lot of people, including, I think, uh, a lot of people in this region uh, and all types of money from this region. Um, the only argument potentially against this would be is that if you look at the uh, increase in volumes uh, within the 24 hour window with Bitcoin trading 24 hours, there is a bias towards uh, the US market as institutions start to grow. Um, but having said that, given the leverage that retail can empl employ through um, Binance and derivatives, which are not technically allowed for US investors, I would argue that uh, it really was driven by derivatives, leverage, and the Asian uh, trading community uh, more so than definitely the US. I think the US has a hard time people accessing crypto. Um, Europe uh, is okay, but again, I think one of the bigger players, Bitstamp, um, you know, I don't think they drive that much volume and they, they can't employ that much leverage. But in Asia, uh, leverage can play a very big part. And as, as you know, in futures and derivatives, again, these markets can be much stronger drivers than the actual spot markets themselves. Yeah, indeed. Um, I actually noted on a recent episode of Market Death, just th this might have been the only kind of Bitcoin price action commentary I made um, so far, but I just wanted to point it out to people that the BITO ETF, the U.S. listed futures backed, was it ProShares uh, Bitcoin ETF? That's again, it's futures backed. Um, their inflows in terms of ETF redemptions creations, their inflows have been rising because they hold and roll the front two months of CME Bitcoin contracts uh, to the point where they're as much as half of the front month and more than like three quarters of the second month. Um, and so that might be the way that maybe retail and or institutional in the U.S., as to your point, um, are getting at least a directional exposure to um, to Bitcoin. Agree with that at all? Um, or um, I think the, the U.S. market and, and the market share of CME of the total vol trading volume is it's, uh, it's been growing, but it's still relatively light. Again, the sizes of the traders in Asia are massive. I mean, they're huge. Um, and they kind of dwarf everything else. So it's kind of like looking at TradFi and saying that, you know, the buying and selling from, you know, uh, any one hedge fund actually makes a difference. When in reality, in Japan, anywhere from 70 to 90% of the volume is high frequency traders or quant trading. So again, what matters there is their trading. Um, so similar, I think, in uh, Bitcoin, um, you know, especially in the Asia region, uh, I, I do think uh, leverage trading uh, is, is a fairly significant uh, determinant, determinant of price. Fair enough. And speaking of leverage trading, let's talk about <laughs> let's talk about TradFi. Mm -hmm. um, so we, we, you and I actually kind of share a, a very similar story. So you know, you grew up in the U.S., you moved to Tokyo, and you started at Goldman Tokyo. Um, I, I also grew up in the U.S. I moved to Tokyo, and my first job in institutional finance was at Goldman Tokyo. You, however, you start off on the equity sales desk, if, if I have that correct, and then you, and then you move to the sort of macro trading uh, and execution desk, um, whereas I started off on the futures and options trading desk and then moved to equity sales. Um, do I have that correct in terms of your, your kind of chronology and story? Yeah, so I started uh, looking uh, after starting in the micro area, looking at single stocks and really visiting a lot of Japanese companies with hedge funds. And so I had the good fortune of 
really spending a lot of time with some of the best, uh, you know, long, short, and, and generally equity ma uh, managers um, who were doing fundamental analysis on, on companies. But from there, I moved to a more market-related role. Um, so I was on the execution desk, and just to give my age away, I, was, I started when there were no algos yet. So again, there were, um, we were just starting to build algos at the time and really uh, replicating the thinking of our execution with algos. Um, and what what year was this like, or what kind of decade time frame? I suppose. <laughs> so I started in the in the late nineties, um, and I joined the derivatives desk uh, in about two thousand. Okay, so two thousand. Okay, so you know a, a solid you know decade, decade and a half before the Kuroda era. Yes. Okay, let's talk about the Bank of Japan because, I mean, my goodness. What a let's just call it fascinating <laughs> and interesting central bank, uh, an outlier central bank. Viewers of uh, and followers and listeners of the Market Death podcast are very much uh, aware of the Bank of Japan and its massive impact that it has uh, on not just Japan, um, but on, on the global assets and global markets and global economy, really, for that matter, and fellow policymakers as well. Um, just so that people can hear it from somebody with, with much more credibility like yourself. Can you just kind of explain the significance of the Bank of Japan? Sure. I mean, you know, I guess the first thing that kind of really uh, uh, struck me was when they started to first buy equities. And I think, obviously, there was the example of Hong Kong, the HKMA, uh, in, during the Asian crisis, which was a big one-off. Um, but having said that, I think when Japan and the BOJ started to buy stocks, and um, and I think it was... I still remember when the announcement came out that no one really could believe what they were doing. But uh, I believe this is 0203 when they uh, were buying stocks and in and, and a meaningful size. Um, and, you know, there's been multiple kind of versions of them buying stocks. But I think they're probably the first central bank to to do this in such scale, magnitude and persistency and use it as a tool. So it being an equity person and uh and following the BOJ, that's the one that really uh, st stuck in my mind. And and they were a leader. Uh, there were other banks in central uh, central banks, sovereign wealth funds, etc., who have kind of done similar things, but not in the same manner as the Bank of Japan. Right, directly purchasing equity ETFs is controversial at the very least, and but certainly uh, either way, groundbreaking in terms of modern, uh, you know, G five central banks behavior um in a kind of what should be a free market capitalist market um and a, a large liquid international market at that um for the central bank just to step in directly but kind of pales in comparison to the 500 trillion yen worth of jgbs that the bank of japan currently holds on its balance sheet which is about over a little bit over half of uh jgbs of the the japanese government's debt outstanding and is setting the price on the other half that has that is yet to acquire um, in the policy of called yield curve control. And so the here and now, um, what's, what's your take of uh, the transition from Governor Kuroda to Governor Ueda? And then where do you see Governor Ueda taking it from here? Yeah, I mean, uh, talk about uh, you know, le leaving him in a tough position. Um, you know, he's taken over uh, in, in a very sort of uncertain world with a very, with a huge, uh, uncertain position, um, and really how to unwind or not unwind it. Um, in the end, um, 
or at least initially, um, you know, I think he'll take it very slow uh, in terms of any sort of changes that's being made. I think uh, Kuroda probably was a bit more maybe playful with the market and, and seemed to uh, enjoy kind of uh, surprises and kind of tweaks and so on that kind of threw people off guard and so on. Um, I'm not sure that Ueda-san is going to that quickly be playful with the market and try different things. So I would think that any changes would be very gradual to start. And then from there, I think that uh, it's, you know, um, it's a question of is it inevitable that they have to unwind it or are they going to just continue to try to reflate the debt away? And I, I, I'm in the latter camp. Okay, so we'll get to that in a second. Um, but just again for the for the, the, the near term. So the Bank of Japan is regarding yield curve control. Are they going to lift yield curve control bands higher, trading bands higher? Are they going to rip it off altogether, um, or are they going to maintain it? And you know, personally, it's been my view that yeah, they might attempt to uh, do do that here and there, kind of like in December of 2022. Although I think that December 2022, what that taught BOJ was to not do that, um, and they kind of learned that lesson. But the reasons that people would say that yield curve control bands need to be at the very least expanded, if not thrown away altogether, is three basic reasons. One, Japan has inflation, so this policy is no longer appropriate. Um, Japan inflation has a three-handle, well above the 2% target inflation. So, you know, again, this is no longer uh, adequate or appropriate policy to, to maintain. That's reason number one. Reason number two being that Japan must get in line with the rest of the world. The rest of the world has tightened policy. Japan must, you know, must get in line. And the third reason is that this is unsustainable. Those are like the three general kind of reasons for people to, to, to give. And then if you look at all those reasons, and unsustainable also means market pressure, you know, with JGB's tra yields trading sometimes higher than yield curve control bands and all that kind of thing. Um, and and they're, they're them buying an insane amount of GDPs on a daily basis as they were in you know, January of this year. If I go, if I look at each of those things, I'm now seeing CPI tick down a little bit in Japan. Core core CPI not, but inflation does seem to be leveling off in Japan and potentially globally as well for the time being. So that pressure might be off. You don't have JGB yields trading above yield curve control bands um, necessarily. They are kind of hovering around there, but they're still staying within, and they're not conducting fixed rate operations on a daily basis and having to defend uh, that that upper band. So there's no real real market pressure. You don't see dollar yen at 150 plus, so you don't really have the currency sort of pressure uh, currently at the moment. Um, so the market pressure is off. The get in line with the rest of the world thing, I thought I always think is a very stupid argument because Japan has never been in line with the rest of the world in terms of monetary policy. And then the unsustainable thing, that's a very subjective definition that's kind of randomly being thrown out there. It's not up to us to determine to say whether something is sustainable or unsustainable. I, I'm, just to be clear, I'm not saying that the printing money and buying financial assets thing can last forever. I don't think that that's sustainable forever. But this particular moment in time, I think, is a very arbitrary thing. So one by one, all the reasons for, for why they must make a change to yield curve control, those are all kind of out, you know, out the window for the time being. However... I will note uh, Deputy Governor Uchida, who is really the mastermind behind, you know, policy architect, who's been around for maybe as long as you have um, in the macro world, but at the at the BOJ um, designing policy. He has said recently in Parliament that the nature of yield curve control is that you have to sh surprise and shock markets because if you guide markets for it, foreign investors, whoever, are going to front run the hell out of it, and they're going to have to just deal with. You know, unlimited buying of JGBs again, 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 
going into whatever that policy is and they they don't have the option of setting the policy themselves so by nature when you know if and when the the bank of japan has to make a yield curve control change they have to do it by surprise so i guess um now that all of those reasons to to change yield curve control are currently off the table if anything now would be the time to shock markets if they're going to do it that way um markets can't be shocked by definition if they are already pressured and prepositioned and being shorted ahead of time um what what's your take on that do you do you agree with that that a policy shock if one were to come were would have to come by shock um and therefore like times like now <laughs> yeah no i think um you know the the shocks that we've seen historically in japan lead to sort of step function type trading that we've often seen so it kind of does nothing and trades a long range um, for across asset classes, and then all of a sudden it just has these huge breaks. So Japan has historically, I think, done that, and that's the way to trade it. Um, so I don't disagree with the the shocking to uh, to do that. Having said that, um, you know, like you mentioned, that with inflation kind of peaking out and coming back down, and you know, some of the you know all the factors you named to cross off the list. Um, I think that is short term. What may be a focus is that um you know they won't need they won't move till they need to move but once they've made that decision then they'll kind of play with the timing is what i think would would happen i don't think that they would try to be ahead of the curve i think they'll continue to stay behind the curve but the time when they kind of get out is when you least expect it um so from that perspective i i do think that you know in the short short term um you could surprise but i'm not sure that they'd be willing to but when we least expect it later this year or early next year um, would probably potentially be, especially if there's a long consolidation period. So I do find that they, when everyone's sleeping, by the time there's a consolidation, nothing's happening. The market's kind of falling asleep because it's boring. That's when they move is the way I would kind of view it. Um, and once it, once the breaks happen, then, you know, I think the macro hedge fund community will come in and, you know, through, uh, various forms, including optionality and, and, and really squeeze the markets uh, and cause the moves to accelerate. And I think the, the regulators uh, and the BOJ and everyone knows how these things work. Um, and so they're very careful about first being sure that that's what they want to happen. And then once they're like, okay, well, we're ready for it, then I think they can do it. But I think the big problem here is currency. I, I think that the way they do it is in a way in which Again, um, you might surprise them when you're at the top end of the 128, 152 band of something that's a bit more hawkish and vice versa. Okay. Um, you just mentioned something that uh, you and I, we met up, we spoke um, at length, but you said something that really kind of opened my eyes to a, a view that I hadn't considered and that um, I think is very profound. And... So I want to ask you about the Widowmaker trade, which is foreigners specifically shorting the JGB market. It's called the Widowmaker trade. The fact that that trade, that, that term being a, a Widowmaker, that could apply to any trade in any financial asset in any direction. You know, something that investors always lose on <laughs> um, and and hence, are, you know, their, their spouses are made widows. Um, but that term is specifically reserved for shorting the JGB market. Why do 
especially foreigners, continue to short the JGB market, why do they keep taking shots at what is explicitly called and known as the Widowmaker trade? You will die if you do this trade. <laughs> um, and my and my take was that there is a huge gap of just pure understanding of what the Bank of Japan is you know, changing or not changing policy on or driving, being driven by in terms of policy and what they are perceived, what the foreign community perceives. So the foreign community thinks, oh, there's 3% CPI in Japan. They must do this now, like I just mentioned before, and therefore I'm going to short JGBs. And that lack of understanding, that understanding ARB really is something that you can just kind of, uh, that I, I've positioned, um, you know, with BOJ against, you know, those who would soon become widow widows, <laughs> widow makers. But, but you gave a completely different um, take on it that I hadn't considered, and that frankly I would say that I was wrong with my kind of thinking. So, Taka, tell me why why do why do foreign macro hedge funds continuously short the JGB market? Why um, do they so, bet against the Bank of Japan? You know, it, um, so there's probably some trades out there that can't afford to miss. And, and this is, uh, I think, one of the biggest trades out there in macro across the globe that across all assets that, you know, most macro people have been around for a while, just can't afford to miss. And this is, you know, just psychologically, um, you know, whether they're at a, a dinner party, a macro event or so on, if it were to ever happen and you've, you're a macro person and you're not in the trade in some form, um, and it doesn't cost much. There, there are cheaper ways of, of putting on the trade. Again, looking at you know an asymmetry, a risk reward of five to one, ten to one on some you know CMS caps or some sort of structure. Um, but you know, just being involved, I think, is going to be major dinner conversation um, if this event were to, of course, ever happen. But even if it were to become close, um, so it, there's that part of it where it's just. Um, people willing to throw a little bit of money at it um, to be involved, and um, you know, and it's it's one of the biggest trades if it were to ever happen um, for anybody. Yeah. So when you said that to me, I was just like, "Oh my god!" Like you're you're a hundred percent right. Like I never thought about it this way because I was thinking like, "What don't these people understand that when?" Let's talk. Let's talk about the Kuroda era, right? Because you know it is just one meeting, and he's brand new. But when Governor Kuroda says we will maintain policy, we are bid for unlimited. We will run you over. Don't mess with the Bank of Japan. It's called the Widowmaker trade for a reason, you know. And when you said that, like, just I was a light bulb went off. Like that's exactly why they have to do this. So we're talking about like the the biggest macro funds that have, you know, even like the Soros's that have like the Bank of England trade under their belt and all that. But the one th trade that they cannot, that they haven't, you know, succeeded with yet. And if that were to happen and you're not involved, that is more of a risk than actually putting that trade on. In other words, it's not about the money at this point for them, but it's about the reputation and it's about the personal pride um, it's not even ego. It's just per it's personal, you know, s stature, I suppose. And and there's that angle, right? Is that 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 that's that's what I was missing. Do I do yeah. I have that correct? Yeah. No, I I think so. Um, but I would add one thing is that I think the currency trade 
will become a part of the same trade. Um, and I do think that where they'll look to actually make money is in the currency. So if dollar yen breaks to 152, then you know I think everyone would be jumping on that train um, and trying to make money there, but probably having something in their back pocket on the rate side as well. Uh, again, you know, it's it's a low probability thing, um, and you know, I think it's probably clear that the central bank will uh, sacrifice the currency before the the bond market. Um, but again, they'll be one in the same trades, but how they look at them is slightly different. Yeah, um, and I've I've actually said that um, before too that especially after September and October of 2022 of last year, when the Ministry of Finance came in and blasted dollar yen down five handles in like 20 minutes um, with unilateral interventions, which by the way, October, I think it was October 22nd, 2022, um, at around 10.30 a.m. Eastern time is when they did it. That was bottom tick in U.S. 10-year U.S. Treasuries. In other words, that was top tick in 10-year U.S. Treasury yields and top tick in USD JPY as well. And that was done that was the ministry of finance in japan putting a v bottom point into the u.s treasury market um but just back to like the, that this notion of um these these macro f uh, funds and these these traders who insist on short on short shorting uh jgbs or just betting against the bank of japan that they'll blink somehow um just like you said, like it's the 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 risk isn't they they know what the risk is from a P and L standpoint. They're fund managers; they know what that is. But the the other risk, the reputational risk, the uh, can they live with themselves sort of risk, that really is what looms, right? And uh, as you said, like you know, you need to. It's it's almost like it's almost like a point of pride to have gotten you know uh, war scars from being run over by the bank of japan like yeah i've i've been a, i've become widowed before right um and if you don't have grass stains on your uniform you haven't been in the game you're not a real player in the macro you know if you haven't been blown up by the boj you're not a real macro hedge fund or trader um and so that's almost kind of point of pride almost right would you say that that's the you know because and I, and I ask you this because you're the one who actually was sitting on the desk you know during hearing voice trading happening on on trading floors and you're watching these uh fund managers and how they execute and you have a really deep understanding personal understanding of how how they operate and what they're what the the people behind them and the, what's you know uh, the personalities are um and so would you say that's kind of an accurate way of of, of looking at it um or am i painting too broad a brush here or stereotyping um, too much or <laughs> uh, i i'd maybe add one nuance to it is is um just if you look by um by decade and so i think when i started in the 1990s um you know there was a very strong desire by many of the biggest um uh, hedge funds i think to to put on that trade and then the 2000s and then the 2010s uh, and it's kind of evolved over time. Um, and, you know, there's different ways of putting it on. But, um, you know, and the players have, have changed slightly. But, you know, many of the players who were doing it in the first two, first two decades I mentioned are still around or have the ability to do it uh, through some form. So, Family um, office or whatever it is. Correct. And so although they may not uh, have the same firepower, maybe, uh, relative to the overall pie as maybe they used to, um so but i think they'd still look to try to get involved in some way yeah they ha they wouldn't be able to live with themselves especially if they tried it before and then they missed it 
Um, yeah. So then I started, when you told me that, I started thinking about that a lot. And then I was thinking like, all right, so there might be actually a, an opportunity in which almost not every single, but like almost every BOJ meeting, there's going to be some speculation that the BOJ is going to, to crack. And the more, every time it doesn't, you could actually just trade alongside the BOJ. So you just be short dollar yen, or, or I'm sorry, long dollar yen, short the yen into these, and then kind of cover on the uh, short squeeze out um, from these funds um, each time, you know, until the one time that uh, the, those, those funds are right. But, um, but yeah, this is a very, very interesting way to, to think about it. You, you totally open my eyes on a, a whole new kind of way, approach to the, the, the foreign capital. Uh, let me ask you about like just Japanese capital and foreign capital in general. Um, let's first talk about you know, Japanese capital, I suppose. So, I've been flagging to market depth followers basically this entire time that this podcast is happening that the, the reason that you need to watch Japanese institutions and Japanese capital has nothing to do with my geographic location. Like, there's no bias here. It's because Japanese capital is the largest that's being deployed out overseas, right? Japan has the largest net international investment position. It owns the f most foreign assets. It's the largest foreign creditor to the United States, as well as, you know, in, in Europe, in Australia, um, because Japan is cash rich, yield starved, and yield curve control and policies like that, the low rate environment is pushing capital overseas to find some sort of yield, be it in the, the safest of U.S. treasuries, hedged or unhedged, to like very shady CLOs and anything and everything in between, right? But can you just kind of touch on like the significance of the and the sheer scale and impact, market global market impact that Japanese institutions as a whole as a whole kind of hold banks, institutions, GPIF, insurance companies, so so on and so forth. Yep. So, you know, I think a lot of people start, you know, April and look at the new fiscal year plan for many of these guys and see how, how their um, sort of asset allocation is going to be and where it's going to, to go. Um, like you said, the sheer magnitude and size of their flows uh, are significant. But, um, you know, they've been investing overseas for a long time and, you know, and view uh, and have a good grasp of you know, uh, yield and carry and, and some of the other issues. But I also think that, you know, they're also, you know, some of them can avoid some of the big problems we've seen too. So in any trade where they need to, if they, even if they're investing overseas, uh, fund short and, and, and lend long effectively. And, with this, and But if you have an inverted curve with a negative carry, I think that the, they were early in probably avoiding some of the trades, which have blown up, you know, some of the regional banks in the, in the U.S., for example. So um, I think a combination of magnitude and, ex and experience uh, over the years, I do think, make them um, important investors to consider uh, in terms of implications across the, across the globe. Um, obviously, in fixed income and credit, I think they've historically been very big. Um, and, you know, when they pulling out, it's a, it's a tide that's going out and when they're going in, it's, it's, a, it's the other way around. And so there's a, some long-term trends that are created by, uh, by them. And I, and I start with the most basic is back in 99, 2000, when all the postal savings were starting to mature and the yields were going from extremely high to close to zero, um, you know, there was a, a major shift of uh, capital moving overseas and beginning the carry trade. So, you know, there's a pretty long history of this type of global asset allocation and search for yield that has probably been um, that the Japan Japanese are probably one of the best at doing. 
So that's, you know, something I think will continue to be the case as they shift uh, capital overseas. But uh, I do think, you know, uh, the higher rate environment uh, in the new arguably regime we're in uh, may change the way they invest. And so it'll be interesting from here as to if their behavior really starts to structurally change. Um, yeah, that's what I want to ask you. So what is your view, I guess? I mean, uh, you know, I, I think that you mentioned that you spoke to um, a, quaint, a mutual acquaintance of ours who was a JGB trader. Are they going to repatriate back home to Japan now that Japan may have higher nominal yields in JGBs? Um, or will they continue to deploy capital overseas? What are you hearing and what do you, what do you think um, in terms of a bigger trend? This is a trend shift. Yeah, so... Um, you know, I, I think that, you know, the expectation for sort of the local market is, is that it's not going to blow up. And so, again, um, where there's greater risk maybe in other parts of the world, um, you know, Japan, where, where what's not going to blow up, the blow up, the, the Japanese market's market, not going to yeah. blow up. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah. um, you know, again, in terms of financial crisis or, you know, uh, markets and, and blowing up and having massive dislocations, yes, you still have them uh, in Japanese markets. But um, I think the, the, I guess the surprises are going to be bigger potentially in other markets. Uh, obviously, we're seeing it in the U.S. fixed income markets where volatility is extremely high and you've got these gaping moves that, um, you know, in that market. But, you know, um, in other markets, it's going to be significant. So I think their appetite to really go out the risk curve um, will will take some time to recover um, in markets outside of the most liquid and, and quote unquote safest. Um, so the conservatism will continue to be there. And from that perspective, uh, Japan or the local market seems to be one that is relatively comfortable. Um, and so with that money, uh, continue to support the local markets. Uh, any major, I think, move in Japan might might take a bit more time. Okay, and then what about Japan retail? Um, because I think that a lot of people seem to underestimate or not even realize again the impact that Japan retail has on global markets. Um, again, due to the sheer firepower size, right? Over half of uh, household assets in Japan are in cash. Um, and so there's a significant amount of firepower. But what's your view on, I guess, Japan retail trends, um, investing trends? So, you know, I think Japanese retail trends are probably in two buckets. One is very conservative and one is very risk-taking. So as we've seen in... Is it generational? Uh, no, I don't, divide? I don't think so at all. I mean, you know, even sitting in crypto, you see those same trends. Did you see some very conservative and some very aggressive um, and it's irrespective of age. So it, uh, as an example, you know, I think that the, uh, there the investor age brackets, I think are centered around something um, close to, I think 20 and 70, um, you know, but just cause they're at the top end of that range does not mean they're all conservative. And so some of these people, uh, they, they were the eighties bubble people. Yes. So they, they yeah. can take some significant risk from what I've seen in crypto as well. Um, so I think the same applies across assets. So would they look at, um, you know, Turkish lira or would they look at binary options or all sorts of things? Yeah, I mean, it, and it's really that the individual's sort of risk tolerance um, as opposed to age, um, which is sort of an interesting, uh, I guess, dynamic that may not exist in many other parts of the world to this extent. 
what drives that risk tolerance? You know, is it speculative sort of animal spirits or is it kind of out of need almost or is it out of I don't want to sound too, you know, um, grim, but like hopelessness and therefore why the hell not sort of, <laughs> you know, um, YOLOing, YOLOing. Yeah. I was trying to avoid that, but, uh, yeah, you know, YOLOing or whatever, whatever it may be, um, be they 70 years old blowing up the Bitcoin bubble in 2017 out of Japan, uh, the going long TRY JPY, um, <laughs> as it's melting down and things like that. What drives that? Yeah, so uh, my my wild guess, I think, is is maybe twofold. One is is true with many people. It's when you, what your earliest earliest experiences teach you. So if you start off with a good experience where you made some money in something, you know, you you tend to kind of relive that experience and and uh, and uh, you know take a bit more risk and, and vice versa. Um, so I think that's uh, this one. I think the um, the nature of some yeah, and again, these are all unfortunately kind of human nature kind of softer things. But you know, some people have a bit more of a, a gambling streak to them, if you will. Um, and so, you know, products that cater to that uh, are being devised pretty constantly, knowing that there's that type of people who's ready, who are ready to um, to use products where they roll exposure and so on, and continue to um, to continue place bets. Um, and then there's the more conservative uh, who are looking for yield. And again, who have found a strategy that they get comfortable with, um, whether it's a buy right strategy or, you know, any sort of yield strategy. Uh, and they just continue to kind of do it. And they, they're very patient. And what you see that, for example, in crypto is that the strength, the flows, uh, the biggest flows tend to be mean reversion flows. So when the, when the markets are crashing, they'll come in and keep buying in Japan and vice versa. When the market's rallying and everyone's getting exciting, they'll just, you know, calmly take profits. So, which has been a fairly, um, a, a good strategy uh, in many volatile assets. They have a trend, um, which again, you know, crypto has had big up cycles and down cycles um, and, and so on. But I do think that, uh, you know, the, the longer term patient uh, crowd who can sometimes move large chunks of capital um, can become bigger players in crypto as well as in traditional. Yeah, definitely. Markets. There's something that I noted. Uh, I noticed a, 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 a few years ago was that so um, Monix Group, who it's like a like a Fidelity or like a TD Ameritrade. It's a trading platform. It's a retail, you know, online brokerage platform in in Japan. Um, and they put out a survey every year of their clients, uh, of their of their retail customers in Japan. In the, they have uh, presence in the U.S. They own TradeStation. Um, they have uh, presence in Hong Kong and in Australia, I believe. And they do um, a, a survey of their retail, you know, uh, customers. And it's always interesting to see like what their views are. Japan investors are always not bullish on Japan and are always bu- bullish on uh, on the U.S. U.S. can sometimes be the exact opposite and all that. Um, but the one thing that I did notice was that they at the end they kind of list the de- like the demographic breakdown, the age groups and all that, especially. And it's it's funny to see that like you'll see these the the age group of like fifty to seventy or sixty to seventy years old, and or those with like one million USD in, in assets and above. Um, so the older, richer people, those 
consists of like that's one of the biggest groups and then there's a valley of like nothingness in like the pe- people in their 50s or 40s and then once you get back get, get into like the kind of 20s and 30s it starts to pick back up again and that's something that kind of developed um r- sort of recently and what the, the way that the timing works is that 2013 abenomics did not get the younger generation, the millennials of Japan, um, and 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 the younger interested at all whatsoever in uh, investing in financial assets and green and red blinking tickers. Period. But just around when the 2017 crypto or the Bitcoin boom happened, that was largely driven out of Japan. That 2017 one. Um, that's when you saw them in you know coming into traditional you know tradfi markets, and so it's to your point they. May, a lot of them made their money. They a lot of them definitely got blown up, you know, in that spectacular uh, collapse as well uh, in twenty eighteen uh, for for Bitcoin. But that introduced them to this world of of markets, and they're looking at it through a lens of things go up really sharply, um, and that's that's how they're almost conditioned and born into it, and um, and has in, and has reinvigorated almost or invigorated an entirely new generation here in Japan. Yeah, no, I think, um, you know, I think it's very case by case and person by person, uh, again, as opposed to sort of generational, um, you know, and some people got involved in, and made some money. Um, so, for example, even in this cycle of crypto, there are people who probably made a lot of money in things like Cardano as opposed to Bitcoin and an enormous amounts of wealth that's created, for example, um, you know, and then being able to get out uh, as well. So not, not being overly greedy. So I think those things definitely benefit and, you know, and the notion of not being overly greedy, I think is, has definitely uh, helped others to accumulate and then to go in again. Um, you know, for Japanese equities where, again, there's been this long-term sort of stigma that's been attached to the market of that, um, you know, it's, it's, it's still a bit of a, a gambling casino kind of thing. Um, you know, that stigma, usually they say the investor's mind, you know, kind of it takes 25 years for it to kind of reset um, for people to forget. And we've well passed that for the Nikkei. So you think that hopefully people have gotten past that. But um, I do think we will see that point in time where, again, everyone that touches the market won't have, uh, most of them won't be scarred by the uh, 89 bubble. Um, and from there, again, as a form of building wealth. Um, it, they just need to find growth. And to your earlier point that Japanese have a bias towards the U.S. equities, I think it's just, I think it's, they have a bias towards growth. And they need, they want to see when they're investing in, in stocks, something that uh, is backed by growth. And some, so if, again, the Japanese economy can recover through hopefully some uh, with a weaker yen, and greater exports, uh, as well as um, the inbound, I think this could be very powerful. Inbound tourism, you mean? Tourism, correct. And I think that could be powerful to spur interest in growth stocks and and growth-related equities uh, and growing earnings in this country. Um, So that's, that's a highly kind of contrary in view at this point still, but I think it could be one of the most interesting. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know if it's that contrarian. So let's talk about foreign capital now. Um, so as you know, Buffett's son, Warren Buffett, he was in Tokyo. He is long the five Japan trading houses. 
Um, and as I say that he put, so when he initially got in, this was at the, what, August 2020, he basically put on a phenomenal macro trade in which he borrowed in Japanese yen. He issued, Berkshire Hathaway issued uh, bonds to fund these long equity positions in the five trading houses. The trading houses, by the way, are around a thousand subsidiaries each. It's very, very difficult, almost impossible to do bottom-up fundamental analysis. So it makes it a very weird Warren Buffett trade or uh, uh, investment, if you will, because it's not he's not single stock picking. And indeed, he's not single stock picking because he, he went equal weight across the board, five trading houses, 5% allocation each. And those stocks basically move their commodity plays they move up and down with commodity markets so basically um what you got was warren buffett in 2020 at the end of 2020 put on a phenomenal macro trade in which he went short bonds long commodities before interest rates and commodities skyrocketed um and then he came to tokyo recently i guess to just the pat management on the back um and and say what a good job that they're doing and to disclose like a larger stake um but what what's your view on uh foreign capital on warren buffett on foreign capital renewed interest in the seemingly renewed interest in japan equities from the international community the nikkei outperforming the major uh you know other regions um year to date you see the largest foreign inflows uh weekly inflows on record um or in, in maybe in 30-year highs uh since that warren buffett visit to Tokyo and his stamp of endorsement of Japan equities is the foreign capital going to get back into Japan now and now of all times when they also simultaneously happen to think that the bank of Japan is going to might royal markets and raise rates yeah no um so uh, although probably most of us will never know you know the true purpose of his visit um but if there is more to the visit than just patting the backs of uh, some CEOs uh and the uh, management team of the trading companies um, you know, it could be a very significant sort of catalyst that we look back upon and say that was maybe the start. Um, as you know, the Nikkei is kind of rallied to about 30,000. It's just been capped there. Um, but as the longer the consolidation, the bigger the, the breaks when they do happen. Um, we'll kind of look back and say, hey, maybe that was, you know, a key catalyst um, to get the foreigners to really wake up to the fact that even Warren Buffett is um, perhaps looking beyond just five set of stocks. Um, and a wider range uh, of potential targets and seeing the value and then the unlocking of that value, uh, which hasn't happened um, in many ways for a while, as many have called Japan a value trap. Um, but uh, when it's, again, unleashed, uh, if um, it's going to be a big trade uh, for many people, um, whether it's you know, just general equity people or your macro team, your macro as well. Yeah, definitely. Um, and it's not, again, it's not just Berkshire and Warren Buffett, although he is the, obviously the symbol of buy and hold long term. But recently we had reports of Citadel coming back into Tokyo. They left at after 2008. They basically sat out all of Abenomics. They're coming in now of all times. Uh, you have Point72 who's stepping up, who's increasing their Tokyo presence. Steve Cohen saying Japan has, you know, extremely wonderful value and all of that. Again, now of all times, you have Blackstone coming in, a lot of like private equity deals. You have like a lot of activity happening in Japan from the foreign investment community. And I'm wondering why and why now? And the only sort of 
you know, glue that could tie this all together is that they share a view. Something is change. Something something is going to change uh, in terms of monetary policy or otherwise. But there's a changing tide. The Japan kind of economic mechanics of and, and markets um, for which they want to be positioned in. Uh, but what do you make of all of the? Are, are they are they all just doing these separately, independently of one another, or what's behind all this? It, people tend to follow big trends. So the Nikkei has historically had these big breakouts. Whether you look at you know two thousand three, two thousand five, you know, uh, so what is it? July of oh three, August of oh five, you know, um, November two thousand twelve, etc. And you've had these break breaks, and then post that, there's a lot of kind of looking back and, and making up a. Well, I don't want to say making up the story, but you know, there, there's a lot of triggers that you know, had the market not broken out, may not have been as big a story potentially. Um, the one thing I just say about the equity market that I've always focused on is, is in all the rallies between 03 and the ones I just mentioned, um, the one sort of thing that kind of signaled the breakout is the Nikkei volatility curve, and so. It's one of the few markets in the world where I think this occurs is that before the break, the um, volatility, uh, implied volatility of the options on the calls uh, tends to spike in the short dated. And it tends to invert. So you have this, what usually happens in a market crash is the volatility at the short end spikes and the longer end is more stable. But in Nikkei, it tends to do that before the breakouts and, and during a breakout. And so it's one of the rare times that this market crash occurs on the upside as opposed to the downside. Um, so again, if we were to see the market continue to test this 30,000 level, and you have some level of stability uh, in, in many of the macro factors out there, I would kind of look for that to occur and, and signal potential sort of major breakout. Um, so we'll see. Uh, but I think that that's something to keep an eye on. I love how you put that. The market crashes to the upside. Because um, <laughs> this, this is Japan, and obviously it has to be different and weird in every way. Um, but yeah, no, you're you're totally right, though. That that spot-up, vol-up phenomenon, that this is actually going to be a substantial move when you see uh, that like vol phenomenon uh, taking place. But it is a very strange thing to happen it's basically like you know sp rallying alongside the vix you mentioned long short funds and the reason that really struck a chord with me with two is because i also mentioned this on a previous episode of market depth but um when i'm looking at all these players coming into the japan from foreign right and the the glue just might be that they have a view that monetary policy is changing and there's going to be a new entirely new regime that somehow benefits them whether it's citadel and like i don't know if it's Citadel securities or the hedge fund arm whatever but either way they benefit off of market activity and volatility long short um levered funds like 0.72 they would benefit because qe what that does is it papers over everything all the fundamentals everything they kind of looks the same but once you remove that blanket right as warren buffett says when you know like uh once the tide goes out then you could actually exploit differences in fundamental long short. You know, this is a crappy company. This is a, a you know a growing company, and markets realize the long short. You know, if Steve Cohen has a view that QE is about to be lifted away from Japan, that's going to help his long long short opportunities. Uh, the one thing about long short I find also in Japan is, you know, they're very good consistent money makers because I think they also um, have a good grasp of the trading regime. So in a market that's trading sideways, where again, long short 
um, shorting expensive, buying cheap, uh, or whatever sort of strategy you might employ or some version of that is fine until you get to these major breakouts or crashes. And so during those periods, I think a lot of those strategies uh, can suffer or else they need to be hedged. And so I think the experienced uh, managers in this market um, tend to be able to differentiate between those regimes and also be able to uh, and handle themselves in those periods and in both sort of uh, periods. And which is a bit different than I think other parts of Asia where again, they tend to either ride a bull market or they tend to be steady, but they haven't had this kind of shift between the two, perhaps as much as Japan has had to in the past you know, three decades. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and this is not trading advice, obviously, um, ever. But, you know, if somebody outside of Japan wanted to get Japan exposure, I mean, would they just be able to do so via Japan equity ETF, something like that? Um, I think DXJ is uh, the currency hedged one. EWJ is uh, just the straight up iShares, you know, MSCA Japan fund. Um, and they obviously have a huge differences, a divergence in, in, in performance um, over the last year with the, the yen crashing like 30%. But yeah, no, I think um, the currency is unfortunately going to play a big part. So, you know, uh, the unfortunate thing would be is that you, you know, you get some stocks that are very good and stable and growing in Japan. But, um, you know, with the with any depreciation in the currency, again, either way that your gains. So as you mentioned, you know, the currency hedge um, ETF is is one way to look at it. Um, I'm not sure that I would expect the, the yen to you know, go crashing, um, especially in a market which eventually sees or an economy that sees, you know, a recovery. So if Japan, again, um, you know, a weak yen might help initially, but then we could see uh, a decent amount of capital inflows to, to more than offset that. Um, so from that perspective, um, you know, owning Japanese stocks might directly might not be a bad thing as well. And really, there's probably two major buckets is, is really looking at um, exporters and a lot of good solid tech companies, a lot of good component companies that have global market share on one hand. And then you have a lot of sort of domestic uh, companies, I think, that could benefit from any recovery in the local economy driven by both. Um, you know, nominal growth uh, via inflation, uh, as well as uh, the inbound tourism trends, which are, again, big enough to help offset some of the demographic uh, consumption uh, declines. So, you know, those two buckets, I think, are quite interesting. Um, you know, my personal preference is, is the latter, um, because I think it uh, would be very, uh, it'd be a bit of a positive surprise. And there are a lot of charts that I look at, which do seem like they're on the verge of breaking out. Um, and so I do think that, again, once the overall markets kind of go through 30,000, uh, if and if they do, then you know it might make it uh, interesting with some of these um, stocks, which have really started to move, um, but could, could potentially see some acceleration. The different drone performance from 2022 of DXJ versus SPY and EWJ. DXJ is a currency hedge ETF. EWJ is the not currency hedged ETF. And so the S&P 500 and EWJ have moved kind of more or less percent percent in tandem downwards. And they're, since the beginning of 2022, they're both down about 11, 12% um, and been down as much as like 25% or so um, towards the, the bottom of last year. Whereas DXJ, currency hedged uh, ETF, is since then has never really been negative and it's up 15% currently as we speak. Um, so that's, uh, you know, 
that's a that's a dm index that is up 15 percent throughout 2022 like you said you do have to be really careful of the currency that's that's going to be the major distinct distinct uh difference between whether or not you have positive or negative pnl with your japan holdings but um but yeah, if you have currency moving in your favor from a foreign perspective, as well as the assets moving up through 30,000 and beyond, uh, yeah, it could be really significant, I think, um, in terms of uh, opportunity for um, portfolio exposure that does not have like a banking crisis attached to it. You've had an amazing career so far in global macro, not just in Japan, and then obviously with being head of sales and trading and a bit flyer. And so what's what's next for the for the great Takakato? Like, now, um I am looking at maybe two areas really and, and one is um you know one is trying to help the younger generation here in Japan um really with uh investing. There's never been a strong investing culture here and so there's been many attempts at trying to to educate. Um but that's something which I would love to try to imbue some sort of you know global international kind of um investing uh and macroeconomic sort of thinking uh into the next generation here. Uh, and and uh, and and really save them from what is potentially a economic cliff that the country faces probably beyond 2030, 2035 ish. Um, and so, you know, I think really the the people of this country need to become much more financially illiterate, illiterate um, before then, um, and especially at the at the younger generation who are, are going to uh, see some heavy headwinds against them. So that's one. Um, I think that rings true for globally too, not just Japan, (laughs) you know, but yeah. yeah. Um, Okay. So that's cool. So that's, I'm definitely behind that. I definitely agree with you on the the lack of education part or um, the financial literacy. uh, And I don't know why they don't teach this in, in high school, like as a mandatory course and stuff like that, you know, personal finance, but I definitely think that's a noble cause. Um, and I guess the, the other thing is just given my um, experience in the last couple of years with uh, crypto is really looking at, um, you know, various projects in, um, you know, Web3 and, and NFT space, which, again, I've been very skeptical of crypto in the last two years um, until and I really didn't uh, focus on it on the long term potential until this year. So at the end of last year, I really started to uh, change, shift my, my thinking on crypto. Um, in crypto assets, uh, not necessarily as currencies, um, and I and I do see some interesting uh, use cases, which I couldn't see before. I'm definitely looking at uh, a lot of projects which are real solutions to real problems that actually need to be addressed. Because many of the projects I have seen um, are are really solutions to you know kind of. Uh, small problems and maybe not urgent problems or really almost irrelevant problems. They, they might not be a, a solution to, to anything, um, but just for the sake of launching. So I, I finally, I think there are some things that are, that are quite interesting um, in terms of projects and, and I'm looking to get involved in some of those. Okay, well, um, to the extent that you could talk, can or cannot talk about that, uh, I would love to get you back on just to talk. What I want to do is definitely get you back on to talk strictly about crypto for for our separate discussion. But um, but but Taka, I uh, I really appreciate your 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 time and all your wisdom here. Um, what so where can people find you and follow you if they want to? You know, I guess keep up to to see what you're up to and you know potentially get in touch and and all that. Um, so I'm on Twitter. Um, so uh, at uh, MMT Global. Um, 
So uh, given that I started Twitter um, right before it sort of MNT became very big, I, I did think it was going to be, you know, something insane that moves the world and little did I know. Um, so yeah, uh, mainly on Twitter. Wonderful. Um, well, Taga, this has been uh, wonderful. Thanks so much for all your time, for your wisdom. Do you have any last words for the viewers of Market Depth um, as our inaugural guest for which you've stamped in history and <laughs> planted the flag? Um, uh, very, very grateful for it. But yeah, any, any, uh, any last words of wisdom? Well, I, I mean, Weston, I think um, it's great that you're doing this as, as sort of a gateway into Asia for many people from overseas which you know, I think we both did um, when we're at investment banks. But again, um, I think people you know, uh, have a hard time from other parts of the world outside of Asia, really following Asia. Um, and so having something like this that uh, they can kind of wake up to is, is, is critical. And I've, I've seen the need for that over a couple of decades. So, and I can't imagine this. I, I think it might be as relevant, if not more, in the next uh, couple of decades as well, especially, well, in all asset classes. Well, that's the that's the best endorsement I've ever heard. <laughs> so, <laughs> very excited to see what you have up your sleeve coming up. But uh, thank you, sir.